Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Y'all can have a seat. Thanks for being here at Three Creeks. My name is Joel, and I get to be the pastor here. And if you are here for the first time, like Kendall said, we're glad that you're here. And if you're here for the 500th time, that would be a miracle because we haven't had 500 services yet. But if you're here for the 250th-ish time, then uh, we're glad that you're back. We're in a series, like Kendall said a few minutes ago, in Ephesians, where chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we're marching our way through the book of Ephesians. As I've mentioned every other week, I think, in the series, is that we know it is the book of Ephesians, and it's tucked towards the, the back eighth of our Bibles, but originally it was a letter written by a man named Paul, who was the pastor of a church, a young church, in Ephesus, which was at the time a very popular city where there were a lot of people from a lot of backgrounds. And Paul writes this letter from a prison cell back to his favorite people. He was their pastor for three years. He's got a deep, deep part in his heart that goes out to the Ephesians. When Paul thinks about some other churches that he plants, he gets angry. He's frustrated at what's happening there. But when he thinks about the church in Ephesus, he writes that it causes him to be thankful and to pray for them and to cheer for them. And one of the other things that I mentioned in the first half, or excuse me, the first message of this series in week one was that the book of Ephesians is six chapters long, but you can really draw a line right down the middle of it, and both halves are pretty distinct. Even if you're not real familiar with the Bible, even if you're taking your first read through Ephesians, I think even you would say, yeah, it feels like two different books. It's kind of like... It's like Heinz ketchup and every other ketchup. There's a distinction. Apparently, you're not as passionate about ketchup brands as me. It's clear that one is different than the other. I, uh, the first three chapters are deeply theological. It is the gospel story, and it helps us have good theology. When you read it, you can't read it quickly and, and understand it and pick up all of it. You've got to Go through, it, go through it slowly, and it's, it's deep and layered, and it helps us think like Christians. And then chapters 4 through 6 helps us live like Christians. It takes this gospel story and describes our story, how it ought to be, in response to what God has done for us. And so the first, you know, six weeks, this is week six of the series, has felt like a lot of theology packed into these messages, while the next in the next couple uh, weeks, through, as we finish the series, Paul's not going to pull any punches talking about the holy lives that the first three chapters require. So if the first half is about learning what a Christian should, the second half, the second half is about living like a Christian should. And so today, we're actually hitting that halfway point. We're, we're running up to the line. This is week six, halfway through the series, halfway through the book. So let me ask you a question as I start today. When you picture Paul, what is the image that comes to mind? Perhaps you're newer to church, newer to the Bible, and you're like, you don't even know who Paul is. And to you, I would say, we are so glad that you're here. We planted this church five years ago so that we all could figure out more about Paul 
and through Paul, God, and how much God loves us. So I want you to know that you're welcome here. But if you're familiar with Paul, if you've heard some Bible stories, you understand that he wrote 13 books in the New Testament. He was a missionary that traveled around, planted a bunch of churches. When you think about Paul, what is the first image that comes to your mind? Here are a couple that come to mind. Maybe they come to yours too. I can picture Paul standing on the side of the road holding coats of the religious elite Pharisees. Paul was there when those religious elite Pharisees took stones and stoned Stephen, who was the first martyr, the first Christian to die for his faith. Paul was there holding their coats, approving of what was happening. That's early in his life. Maybe what comes to mind is the story when Paul is traveling to Damascus to go put some, pri- some Christians in prison. And God meets him in a miraculous way, and he sees a light, and he, he meets Jesus Christ. And then Paul, even though his eyes are open, it appears as though he can see. He cannot see. He's blinded. And then a couple days later, the scales fall off of his eyes, and his life is completely transformed. Maybe the picture of Paul that you have is him treading water in the Mediterranean Sea because he was shipwrecked three different times on his journey. Maybe you picture him preaching to thousands of people. I mean, this guy is the first century Billy Graham. He is a missionary preaching to to just auditoriums of people. Maybe you picture Paul. I think this is the image that comes to mind for me first. In a prison cell, he's got a big old beard, And he's got a quill and a candle, and he's just writing letters to people that he loves, churches that he started. Paul here in Ephesians 3, as he writes to the Ephesians, he paints a picture of what he's doing when he's writing this. And it's not a picture that comes to mind for me when I think about Paul. But Paul describes his posture, his physical posture. Look at verse 14. He's recapping. He's He's sealing what he's already written in the first couple chapters of the book. And he says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray. And Paul's going to go into his second prayer. It's almost as if he opens the book of Ephesians with a prayer for them, and then he's going to tell them about the gospel and what it means, and then he's going to seal it with a prayer at the end. It's like a it's like a Bible study, you know? It like doesn't count if you don't pray at the beginning and the end. Paul does that. He models this, this posture of kneeling before the Father and praying. Paul's under house arrest when this is happening. He can't leave his house. Friends can come and go and kind of tell him what's going on in other places, but he's not allowed to leave. And Paul gets on his knees and says, I'm praying for you, Ephesians, because there's a deep, deep love that Paul has for them, and he misses them, and he wants to see them, but he can't, and so he prays for them. And while that might not seem that unusual to you, perhaps you've seen somebody get on their knees and pray. Perhaps you think, yeah, that didn't seem all that unusual for a Bible hero like Paul. But what you got to understand is that Paul grew up as a guy named Saul, and when Saul was growing up, he was mentored by a man named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was in the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is, are the 70 most influential, powerful Pharisees and Sadducees. We're talking about re- elite religious Jewish people. And Paul was an up-and-comer. You don't get to be with Gamaliel 
You don't get to be his, his pupil if you don't have something to offer the next generation of Pharisees. Paul's the up-and-comer, and a Pharisee was taught not to pray on his knees. This is not how Pharisees pray. Pharisees pray like this. They stand on the street corner, they stand in the synagogue, and they lift their hands and they pray, and the first line out of a Pharisee's mouth in their prayers is, God, thank you that you did not make me like these other people. Thank you that I'm not an adulterer or a thief. And then they begin to rattle off how much they've fasted, how much they've given, how much they've prayed. And they're taught, they're coached to pray in public so that everyone can hear about their good deeds. And this is how Paul is raised to pray. And when he prays for the Ephesians, he gets on his knees. Because everything about Paul has been totally transformed. And Paul knows who he is in light of who God is. He, everything about him has been transformed, even to the point, even to how he prays. Listen, there's enough in the Bible about not praying on our knees that makes it so that praying on your knees is not a requirement. But there's so many instances in the Bible where your heroes, the posture that they take when they pray is to get on their knees. Ezra prayed on his knees. Solomon prayed on his knees. David prayed on his knees. Daniel prayed on his knees. Peter prayed on his knees. Paul prayed on his knees. The early Christians in Acts chapter 2 and 3, they prayed on their knees. Jesus himself went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the most memorable, iconic prayer that Jesus has in all of the Bible is recorded while Jesus is on his knees praying to God. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that the Bible has enough prayer not on the knees to show us that it's not required, but it has enough prayer on the knees to show us that it is good. So when Paul prays, what does he say? What does he say at the end of this theological discourse? It's almost as if Paul was writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. And it's so, it's so much that he just catches himself and goes, I better pray. I better pray that they remember all of this stuff. So let me just go through what Paul prays for, and then we'll kind of chomp our way through it a little bit at a time. This is the prayer of Paul at the end of chapter 3 for the Ephesians. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory forever and ever, in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So in studying for this whole series, I've been listening to a series of messages by a pastor that I look up to named Alistair Begg. And just to give you an idea, we're going to take 13 weeks to go through Ephesians. My man Alistair took 83 weeks to go through Ephesians. 
And on this passage specifically, there's, there were five different sermons. And I'm kind of trying to boil it down into one. So I guess ahead of time, I'm asking for forgiveness for either poor series planning or maybe skipping a part of this that warrants a full sermon, but I'm just not going to get to everything in it. I explained a couple weeks ago that you could take a whole trip through Ephesians, and it doesn't matter if it's 13 weeks or 83. You would get to the end of Ephesians, and you could run it back. You could do it again because of how theologically dense this book of the Bible is. My prayer as I've studied for these has been, Lord, what do you want us to get this time through, knowing that there might be a day where we just do this again because there's so much to chew on. Let's go through the, the prayer one verse at a time, one or two verses at a time, and I'll just warn you now, or I guess I'll give you the heads up, that when we get to 18 and 19, we're going to stop and stay there for a little while. But first, verse 16 and 17, Paul prays that out of his glorious riches that God would strengthen us, they're the Ephesians, with power through God's Spirit in their inner beings, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. And I just think, I just read that and thought, man, would you look at that? Because some of us think that asking Jesus into our hearts is a childish way to to talk about spiritual things. But Paul just drops it into the most theologically dense letter that he writes. He says that he wants Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith. I want to go on record to say if you're a parent in here or ever want to be a parent or ever back in Three Creeks Kids and talking to kids, that I think telling our kids to ask Jesus into their heart is a very biblical way to talk about faith and becoming a Christian. That's the way that when I was five years old, that's what I did. I prayed, Jesus, will you come into my heart? And then about 452 times in the next couple years, I kept praying that prayer. Jesus, will you come into my heart? I was five years old when that happened. And he's been in my heart ever since, even in high school, during my crazy days when I had bleach tips and a cartilage ring. (laughs) That's almost an unforgivable sin, but he forgave me for that. Even in college when I figured out what beer pong was. Even when I was 21 years old and having a serious battle about, is this real? Is this real? Or is this just my parents' stuff? Is this true? Is there, a, is there a different and better and more true way to live my life? Even through all of those days, Jesus never left, in Paul's words, my heart. And I, I, I think what Paul's saying when he refers to our hearts, he's talking about the core of who we are, the center that that affects every area of our lives. We, we run into problems when we don't invite Jesus into our hearts, but we ask him into other individual parts of our lives. That's when we run into problems. When we want Jesus to come into our finances or into our health or into our marriage, but we keep other parts away from Jesus, that is when we run into problems. And then Paul is saying that he wants Christ to dwell in the center of who they are. Therefore, it would permeate into every area of their lives. Paul doesn't want to get, have them just taste a little bit of Jesus here and there. Paul, Paul doesn't want them to just hope that God helps them in the hospital room or when they make a bet on the Super Bowl. 
God, Paul wants them to ask Jesus into their hearts, which would mean that everything about them would, would, would flow in and out of that relationship with Christ. Maturing as a Christian means continually asking Jesus into our hearts, into the core, into, the, into every area of our lives. And what Paul writes is that he wants Christ to dwell there. And in studying for this message, I found something that was really cool that I want to share with you. In the original language that Paul wrote this letter, there's two words that can be translated from the Greek into the word dwell. Paul writes that he wants Christ to dwell in their hearts. And there's two different words that, tra- that are translated to be the same English word, dwell. The first is skinao. Skinao, it implies that it's kind of temporary. Picture a circus tent. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a dwelling, you can be under it, it'll protect you from the rain, but it probably won't be there in a few months. You, it, it's up and down. It, it, it implies that it's coming and going and not going to be forever. The other word for dwell is katoikeo, and this implies a long-term dwelling. They pour the footers, brick and mortar. They're not tearing this house down. It would be too expensive to do that. This is, a, this is one that's going to stay. It is permanent. In John chapter 1, in the first 13 or 14 verses of John 1, it's, it's one of the best passages in the Bible about Jesus, about who he is, about what he came to do. There's a verse in there that says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, or he came to dwell among us. That word there in that book is the word skenao, which means it implies that it was temporary. And if you think about it, it was even though Jesus was on the earth for 33 years, when he came from God, earth was never going to be the resting place for Jesus. He always knew that he was going to resurrect and ascend into heaven. And so when he said that I've come and I'm going to skenao with you, it means that I'm coming, I'm going to save you, but I am going to go back to heaven. This is temporary for me. But when Paul says it here, he's writing katokeo. He's saying, I want Christ to dwell in your hearts, katokeo, forever. It means that Christ takes up a permanent residence, which means that if you ask Jesus into your heart, it's as if he comes in there and pours the footers and says, this is home. This is my home. This is permanent. And so for me as a parent, I'm, I'm going, when I talk to my kids about this, maybe, maybe your kids are smarter than mine and you can go katokeo on them. But I'm just going to say, kids, Cooper, Judah, Willow, do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? It's a great way to say that you want to be a follower of Jesus. Do you want to ask him into your heart? Because he wants to pour the foundation and he wants to stay there forever. I just thought that was pretty cool that Paul used katokeo there. And then he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people. Seems like we might need to be together to get this. Paul emphasizing the importance of the church again. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul has, you know, all through the New Testament, 
when you, when you read Acts and you hear about him going from city to city to city, standing up in the public square and preaching the gospel, crowds coming out, hearing it, receiving it, what you wouldn't say about Paul is he's nervous to talk in front, about, he's nervous to talk in front of people, that he doesn't have a way with words. You would say, no, Paul has a lot to say and he's bold, and he's brave, and you don't want to get into a debate, in a, in a debate with Paul because he's, he's, he's got a lot to say, and he's really good at saying it. But here, as he, as he writes this, it's almost as if he's at a loss for words because what he says is, I just hope that they're able to understand the width and the depth and the height and the length of God's love. But even if they do, he writes, to know that this love, it surpasses knowledge. Meaning that to some extent, for the rest of our lives, we all will be trying to figure out how much God loves us. If you have been a Christian for one week, you're definitely trying to figure it out. If, you are, if you've been a Christian for 50 years, you're a little bit closer, probably but you won't figure out how much God loves you because it surpasses knowledge. It's as if when thinking about the love of God, Paul is going, I don't even know how to describe it. It's indescribable. And he uses words that try to explain the extravagant dimensions of God's love for us. He prays, and I'm just going to kind of Stay here for a minute and, and highlight these words. The width and the height and the length and the depth of the love of God. Paul prays that the Ephesians first would comprehend the width of God's love. You can tell how wide a river is by noticing how much it covers. And when we doubt the forgiveness of God, what we're doing is we're narrowing the mighty river of God's love on our lives. If you hear about the love of God and you're inclined naturally to resist it or to doubt it, then you're not aware of the true width of God's love which covers over every mistake that you've ever made. You don't have to answer this one out loud, but what is the worst sin that you've ever committed? What is the sin that you said you weren't going to do again and you did. What is the, Paul writes, the besetting sin, the thorn in your side, the one that you can't seem to get rid of, the sins that you're aware of and the sins that you're not aware of. I would propose there's even more of the latter. Every sin are covered. The psalmist writes in trying to describe the width of God's love and God's grace. He writes, as far as the east is from the west, so our transgressions are separated from us because of the love of God. That's the width of God's love. I want you to picture a river that just keeps expanding over every imperfection. And don't doubt the forgiveness of God and bring that river in and say, it probably can't reach that far because it can. That's the picture of the width of God. He prays that we would comprehend the length of God's love. 
And when, when contemplating the length of God's love, you've got to ask yourself two questions. When did God's love start for me? And when will it end? Do you know how the Bible answers those two questions? When did God's love start for me? It did not start for you when you were born. It did not start for you when you asked Jesus into your heart, if that is something that you've done. It did not start for you when Jesus rose again or died on the cross or was born in the manger. And it did not start for you at creation. The Bible says in in Ephesians, in chapter one, it says before the creation of the world in love, God chose you, predestined you to adoption to be his child. Meaning that his love started before Genesis one was written for you, for me. It says that he's loved us with a love that lasts through all of eternity. And so the answer to the second question is, when will it end? The answer to that is, it will not. It won't end. He's loved us with an everlasting love. Everything else in life that we treasure has an end to it. Am I right? Your house, somebody someday will tear it to the ground. Your job, your career, you're going to retire or your company's going to go under. Something's going to happen. Like if you cherish that, it has an end. Your six pack will turn into a one pack at some point. It will end. Ten glorious seasons of the office. And then it ended. And in some ways, I'm kidding, but in other ways, I'm just being honest to point out that everything that we enjoy, everything that we love, everything that we're passionate about, everything in this life, it has an end to it. But the love of God is infinite. It doesn't have an end to it, and it goes forever. And then he prays that we would comprehend the height of God's love. To see the height of God's love, you have to ask yourself, how high does it lift me? And the answer is to the heavenly places where I am seated with Christ. If you've ever wondered, as a Christian, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Because it does feel like people who aren't Christians, it appears from time to time like they're having more fun. Is it worth it? Is the cost is high? Is it worth it? Because of the height of God's love you can be assured that it is, that he's ripping us out of the gutter and taking us to a heavenly palace one day. That is a picture of the height of God's love. And then he prays that we'd comprehend the depth of God's love. And this suggests a picture of how deep God had to reach us. Consider for a moment the depth of the agony that Christ endured in going to the cross. Not just the physical torture of having a cross put on your head, of having nails put through your hands, of putting nails put through your feet, of having a a, a sword pierce your side. I'm not talking about the physical torture of what he went through only, but the public humiliation like biting your tongue through all of that. And then not only that, but the weight of all of the sins of mankind being put on his shoulders in a moment. That is actually what Jesus was asking 
when he said, Father, can this, pa- can this cup pass from me? When he got on his knees in the garden, he said, God, is there any other way? He wasn't even worried about the physical stuff or the public humiliation, but it was the spiritual weight of sin, of all of sin on his shoulders in that moment. That is the depth of the love that God has for us in and through the person of Christ. His love is so deep. Think about this for a second. His love is so deep. It reaches so far that the worst sinner in the room right now God's love reaches for that person. The worst sinner in the room, the worst sinner in Gehenna, the worst sinner in an Ohio prison, God's love is deep enough to reach down to that person and he offers grace and forgiveness to that person. The worst sinner in America, the worst sinner in the world, that is the depth of God's love. And you can disagree with that, but I'm not sure that you want to. That is the depth of God's love. And Paul says, even as you start to kind of wrap your mind around this, if you picture a river and how wide it is and how deep God has to reach and how high heaven is, even even as soon as you think you're scratching the surface of how much God loves people, he goes, this love surpasses knowledge. In other words, you're not even close. You, you can't even, you can't wrap your mind around the love that God has for people. And even when you, on a very personal level, have perhaps doubted whether or not God could love you because of something that happened in the red light district, something that happened on a battlefield, something that happened in an office something that happened on the internet, something that happened in your imagination. In your darkest moments where you go, how could God love me? If he he knows this, he wouldn't love me. In those moments, you've got to go, it doesn't make sense that he loves me, but that's because my mind can't comprehend how much he does. It can't comprehend how much he does. I, uh, it would be crazy for a 36-year-old pastor who has three young kids to talk about the love of God without giving an illustration about his children. Am I right? You know what I mean? One time I, uh, I, told, I told a story about Cooper, and it was about how she kept stealing some candy. I don't know if you guys remember that, but she was in here that day, and she gave me a piece of her mind in the hallway back there, and she said, Dad, I did not like that you told that story. And I said, from now on, Cooper, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that I ask you and ask for your permission to tell any stories about you. So yesterday, I, I pulled her aside and I read her this, and she says, yeah, you can tell this. So this is Cooper approved. Willow doesn't have those rights yet. I'm allowed to say whatever I want about her. Uh, people, I'm telling you, people were dogging on me a couple weeks ago because I kind of threw Willow under the bus as my most disobedient child. And this past week, Judah came to me, my son, he's four, in the middle of the night, and he said, Dad, or he was crying. And I said, I said, go back to bed, buddy. And he's, he, he was really crying. So I'm like, I think maybe he's hurt. He's my foot. My foot hurts. And I'm like, I think maybe it does. So I kind of went upstairs with him, and I, I was trying to figure out, is this like a rash, or is this a growing pain? And so I said, Judah, 
does it feel like your foot is on fire, like it's hot? Or do you feel like maybe your foot got hit with a golf club, like it's sore? And Judah said, Dad, it feels like Willow hit me with a golf club. <laughs> so I'm just telling you, everything I say about Willow is true. <laughs> this, is a, this is a story about Cooper, and, and it, ha- it has a part at the end that I didn't plan on sharing, but I think maybe it's the most important part. But let me, let me try to get there. So on, on July 1st, 2016, Morgan and I had Cooper. And, it, it, you know, it's, it's, this, uh, it's this love that I had never felt before. You know what I mean? Like, I loved Morgan, and I loved my parents, and I loved my friends, but I had Cooper. And it's a love that you just can't, you can't put it into words. And then she got a little bit older, and she started to learn numbers. And so I would go into her room at night, and if she ever learned a new number, she would tell me that's how much she loved me. She was always trying to compete and tell me that she loved me more than I loved her. And she would say, uh, she would say, Dad, I love you a hundred. And I would say, I love you a hundred and one. And she would go, oh, you beat me again. And she would come in and say, Dad, I love you a thousand. And I'd say, I love you a thousand and one. A million. Guess what, Coops? I love you a million and one. Oh, she beat me again. One day, she thought she had me. She learned a new number. She said, Dad, guess what? I love you infinity. And I said, Coops, you're not going to believe this. I love you infinity and one. She went, oh, like she's never going to beat me. It's, It's this love, every other love that I've had in my life for things, it just, it's waned. If I see imperfections or flaws, my my love, it goes down. But for some reason with my child, even the flaws make me love her more. And it's because my love for her is deeper than those things. Even when she makes a mistake or gets into trouble, her nature is to want to run and hide. And so she does that. Because of this love that she's heard me talk about affinity and one times, there comes a moment where she realizes that I'm in her corner and even through tears, she'll run back and she'll hug me and she'll say, I'm sorry, dad. And I say, I love you, Cooper. Even through all of that, my love for her has intensified. And in writing that this week, I, I had a thought that I... I just couldn't shake it. And I, for some people in the room, a picture of a father's love for a child, it works. And you think, that helps me see the love of God even more, that even through my faults and imperfections, he would love me more. It works. And that chances are it works because you had a good dad. You had a dad who loved you or you're a good dad. And you love your kids, and so the the father-child illustration can work, but the bottom line is that I know that there's some people in here, the father-child 
love that a dad has for a kid, it doesn't work. In fact, it works the opposite way. It's because you didn't have a great dad. And you say, if that's how God loves me, then well, then forget this. I just want to acknowledge that that is the experience some people, of, of some people in the room. So with that in mind, here's what we need to understand, that the Bible often compares human fatherhood with divine fatherhood. There are so many illustrations in the Bible about this. But it also draws our attention to the vast difference between divine fatherhood and human fatherhood. There, there is an enormous difference. And this is the best way I know how to put it. The distance between a bad dad and a good dad is a millimeter. But the difference between the love of God the Father and any dad is infinite. That is the love of God that he has for us as his kids. So if that illustration is helpful, then go for it. But if it's not, we can't use our experience with our earthly dad as some sort of limit or cap on God's love for us. I had an unbelievable dad. He's the best. But if I hold up my dad's love for me to God's love for me, it's like holding a candle to the sun. The, the God the Father does not have the sins of my dad, the weaknesses of my dad, the limitations of my dad. He's perfect, and he's loved all of us since before the creation of the world. God wants all of us, grown kids, 40-year-old kids, 60-year-old kids, 20-year-old kids, to know that he's nuts about us, that his, his love is wide enough to cover every sin, is long enough that it lasts forever, is high enough that it takes us to heaven, and it's deep enough that it reaches even the worst one of us in our worst moment. That is the love of God. There are times, I hang out with Christians often enough to know that there are times that it feels like God is simply tolerating us, waiting for us to get our act together, but in reality, he loves us with a love that we cannot understand with our human brains. And, and we're all on this journey for the rest of our life to, fight, to try to figure out, man, despite us, despite the flaws and the mistakes, his love just intensifies over time. He looks at us and says, those are my kids. And I love them like crazy. I just, I want you to just sit and think for a second about this love that God has for you. And, and I want you to consider, if I'm being honest, have you received that recently? Or, or have you been just beating yourself up? Have you in your nature run away and hid from meeting with God because of something going on in your life, how you handled a situation? I'm just asking, when's the last time that you let the love of God just wash over your life and be that mighty river that covers over every mistake. You are loved by the God of the universe and you always will be. I'm gonna pray for you and then we're gonna sing a song, one more about the love of God. And so would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? Father, for my church, for this church, for Three Creeks, Lord God, would you help us today to see 
that the width and the height and the length and the depth of your love surpasses knowledge. Father, for those people in the room who have asked you into their hearts, would you let them feel your love today? For those who have never asked you into their hearts, God, would you penetrate the walls that they may have built up and would you come in and would you show them, reveal to them how much you love them? As we go about our week this week, Father, would you remind us on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday in a unique way, would you, would you help our minds to recall this love that surpasses knowledge that is on our heads. Father, as we sing this song to you, would you allow us just to reflect on the depth of your love for us, that it's vast beyond all measure. We'll never get it. We love you, God, but not as much as you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.